Hi, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you here. Uh, I don't normally do this, but I did want to take one minute before we get into our time in God's Word and recognize, actually, a friend of mine who's relocating to Dallas, J.J. Checky. I think you're here. Are you over here? Yeah, I thought I heard you laughing loudly over there. Uh, J.J. has been a part of this church consecutively since 1999, working for many years in youth ministry here, and he and his wife, Kristen, their three children, are relocating to the Dallas area for J.J. to take a job with Pop, as his dad, in the financial services arena. So, J.J., we love Love and appreciate you. Just want to tell you we love it. We would not be the church that we are without you and Krista. So thank you. There's a, I believe there's a reception, a reception for them, a uh, reception for them this Friday at 6 p.m. over an elevator. If you'd like to say see you later, it's called a see you later party, not a goodbye. All right. Here we go. Judges. Here we are. Chapter four. Let's get into it. You can pray for me. I'm a bit rusty. It's been a few weeks. Here we go. Judges chapter four, verse one. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagaim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years that cried to the Lord for help. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abimoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanaim near Kadesh. When they had told Sisera that Barak, son of Abimelam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagoim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagaim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, Is there anyone in there? Say, No. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. Now, why the book of Judges? Well, 
The book of Judges summarizes Israel's history in between the time of Moses and Joshua and the Exodus and later in the time of the kings of David and Saul, names you may be familiar with. This book is about a time period in Israel's history where, like our time period in history, the prevailing thought when it comes to spirituality, church, religion, is this, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as you read the book, as we go through this, you'll see the people in this book are so bad and even the so-called judges themselves become so flawed and dysfunctional that by the end of the book, you and I as a modern reader, we're left asking the question, why in the world is this book in the Bible? And the answer is this. The book of Judges, almost more than any other book in the Bible, shows us what the gospel is all about. The Bible is not primarily a book of virtues, a series of inspirational stories, although there may be some inspiration. No, it's primarily about a God of mercy and long-suffering who comes into, moves into, and redeems even the worst life. And in the end, the book of Judges shows us that there is only one true hero whose life I hope we'll see more clearly this morning through the story of two of the good judges of Judges, the story of Deborah and Barak. Now, what do we see in this story? Primarily this morning, three things. First, we're going to see the, the power, excuse me, we're going to see the source of uncommon courage. Secondly, the power of unstoppable humility, which come from number three, the unexpected deliverer. So, courage, humility, a deliverer. You ready? Let's do this. All right, number one, uncommon courage. We should ask, what's, what's going on here? Where are we? All right, verse one shows us what's happening and sets it up. It says, again... The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what kind of evil did it say they do again? Well, this chapter doesn't tell us, but chapter 2, a couple before this does, it says, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what does it say? They served the what? Yeah, the Baals. Now, when we read this, we read the book of Judges, we think, what a bunch of strange people. You know, these people, they worship idols, right? Thank goodness we're past all that kind of stuff today. Now, don't move so fast, of course. Don't be so sure. Here's the thing. Those pagans, so-called, were ahead of us in at least this way. They knew there was spiritual power in everything. See, the word Baal means master or Lord, and that's why it says they served the Baals, plural, not just Baal himself. Because, see, there was a war Baal and a sky Baal, a, a fertility Baal, an agricultural Baal. A Baal could be anything and anything you wanted could be a Baal. Baal worship was powerful because it knew everyone, every human heart would worship something. Now, it wasn't the idols so much they were worshiping as the dark power behind those idols. And as you read the book, you find God's people under the influence of idol worship systematically committing shocking and perverse crimes against one another, stealing from one another, lying for one another, cheating one another in everyday life. Now, it's a good thing times have changed, hasn't it? So what is God going to do for his people to free them from themselves? Well, he is going to allow them to experience the mercy of his judgment. He allows the king of Canaan, it says, to oppress them. And the king of Canaan's most feared weapon was a man by the name of Sisera, who, it says, had more than 900 chariots. Now, in those days, a chariot was the, the, the old equivalent to, a, to the modern-day tank, militarily speaking. One, one tank, one chariot, could cut right through a division of men. And therefore, what the narrative is telling you is this. From the beginning of the story, Israel is outgunned 
and outmuscled. They have no way militarily of freeing themselves from Sisera. But not only was Sisera powerful, he was also cruel and wicked. The next chapter, chapter 5, which is a song that summarizes chapter 4, tells us what Sisera would do when he conquered a people. It says he liked, quote, to take a woman or two for every warrior's plunder. This word used here for woman is closer to our, our word wench or sex slave. In other words, Sisera was a professional military sex trafficker. He took young girls, forced them to be his sex slaves, and allowed his army to do the same. And here, therefore, is what's happened to the people of Israel for 20 years. They were literally and psychologically brutalized by a military superpower who forcibly took their daughters from their homes and forced them to be their sexual playthings for the army and the ruling class. Now, in the middle of this, because Sisera had, quote, cruelly oppressed them for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Can you see, now, after 20 years, two decades, the people's hearts are returning to God. But you say, why did it have to take this? I mean, couldn't it have been a different way? We think, man, maybe if God would have just given them, you know, more grace, they would have figured it out. But the answer is no. God had already, remember, already delivered them from slavery as a people in Egypt, given them his word, his law, his direct presence uh, in, in the tabernacle. He'd given them a land for them and for their children. No, God had given them all of that, and yet they still fell away, see. No, it couldn't have been any other way. And sometimes God in his mercy steps back and allows the pain of our circumstances to draw our hearts back to him. There was no other way to get their attention. And sometimes there's no other way to get ours. Now, you may be asking, Morgan, are you saying that every bad thing that's happened to me in my life is my fault? By no means. Look at the book of Job. A man who suffered, though he had done no wrong. That being said, Judges clearly teaches us that sometimes God does use, many times we'll use the circumstances in our lives to get our attention and soften our hearts toward him. So let's ask now, how would God answer the people's cry to rescue them and their daughters? Verse 4 tells us, God would raise up a daughter of his own. Verse 4 says, now Deborah, a prophet, was leading Israel at that time. She was so powerful and charismatic a leader. This is the sons, the leaders, the men of Israel would come to her for her judgment. She was a leader of leaders in a time where even the roads and the cities were shut down for fear of Sisera. How did she do this? She tells us herself. In the song she sings in chapter 5, she says simply this. She says, I... Deborah arose. I arose. Now, you may think, man, big deal. She stood up. No, no, that's not what this is about at all. No. To arise in the Bible is a technical term, which means to cast off one's circumstances, to push past one's pain, and to decide not to allow your friends or your family's failings to be your future. See, it says, Abraham arose, Jacob arose, David arose, Hannah arose. And what this teaches us is this, that you may and likely do have trouble today. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. We probably all put our hands up for one reason or another. You may likely and do have massive challenges facing you today. You may have pain in your marriage, in your job, in your mind today, in your soul. But hear this, nothing will ever change. Nothing will ever change. It will all stay the same until you decide to arise. Decide to arise. Until you say, enough is enough. Until you say to that thing that's come against you, you shall not pass. 
nothing will ever change. Until you say, the enemies of my soul have only come against me to be defeated. Nothing's going to ever change. Until you say, I am tired of seeing my life and my family, my, my loved ones, my city, be brutalized and led away to serve a purpose for which they were never intended. Nothing's ever going to change. See, village life ceased until she arose. The roads were abandoned until she arose. And the lies we entertain in our mind, maybe the sin you hide in secret, oh, it'll keep you that way until you arise, until you, like Deborah, decide to rise up. Now, we should ask, how could she do this? She did it. How? What was the secret to her, to her, to her courage? It's amazing. It's one thing, and one thing alone. I'll put it like this. She had the sense of God upon her soul. The sense of God upon her soul. Look at what it says here. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Command you, go, take with you these men. I'll lead sister. I'll give them into your hands. What does this show us? Oh, it shows us a person leading from an incredibly rich and deep and intimate relationship with God. The sons of Israel would come to her to see what she would say. Why? Because of the sense of God upon her soul. I'll just say to you, let me suggest to you, exhort you, the greatest thing you can ever bring into any situation is the sense, the presence of God within your soul. The mothers, fathers, the greatest thing you can ever give your children is that, the taste of God within you. Can you bring people that? Can you give them that? Listen, this can't be bought. It can only be cultivated. Only be cultivated. Where do you think Deborah's been for 20 years? Oh, cultivating this. Honing this in secret, practicing this. So you want to give people something that will last and set them free? Cultivate the sense of God within your own soul. See, Deborah had it. And therefore, she could bring the word of the Lord to bear on the problems of her generation. And she had uncommon courage. Now, before we move on, what I hope you'll also see is this. I hope you'll see a kind of a picture here. And it's the picture that the Bible gives us of women throughout the Bible. And the picture it presents us with of Deborah is consistent with the rest of the Bible's perspective on women, which is this, one that doesn't fit in with either traditional or liberal gender roles and views on women. And if you're here today with one of those perspectives on womanhood, I dare you right now to fit Deborah into one of those. The liberal gender role uh, of women description says that gender is just sort of a, you know, an artificial social construct to be shaken off. Then a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Some of you will get that later. I mean, you've seen that bumper sticker before. But Deborah doesn't fit that kind of description at all. No, Deborah is the leader of a nation, but she seeks out a complimentary male leader in Barak to lead the army. Nor does she say, you know what, I'm leading the nation as a woman, therefore I should also be the priest, which is a role God reserved only for men. No, she leads with limits. And in the end, how does she describe her leadership style? She says, I arose as a mother. In other words, she's not in it just to shake off gender constructs and prove something to the old boys club. No, she's comfortable as a woman with giving herself a traditional feminine description. But on the other hand, Deborah doesn't fit into the traditional view of women either, which sort of says this, you know, a woman's place is in the home, a woman's place is only with her children, and the only reason a woman would ever be in charge is because there wasn't a man good enough to do the job. And by the way, that's likely how many of you have heard this text presented. Many of you have been taught, yeah, okay, sure, Deborah led, but she's sort of an exception because, De- uh, excuse me, Barak was just too weak to lead, right? Now, that's a totally, may I suggest to you, sexist way 
of viewing this narrative. It's insulting in three ways primarily. It's insulting to God, first of all, because Deborah is clearly presented in the text as God's chosen answer and rescuer for the people as they cried out. It's insulting to Barak because he is an incredible leader in his own right, as we'll see shortly. And it's an insult to Deborah herself because in a time without kings, no one would willingly follow someone who didn't have the goods of real leadership on her. And the nation, you see, follows her willingly, not under compulsion. No, she's here in the text. She's hearing from God. She's barking out orders to the boys. <laughs> and they run and follow, right? So Deborah doesn't fit the traditional gender role description either. No, Deborah is something else altogether. She is a person with uncommon courage who has risen up and she is leading her nation back to God out of the deepest sense of God upon her soul. And friends, man or woman here today, the same can be true of you as well. But that's not all we learn in the passage. We don't just learn about the source of uncommon courage. We are also confronted with in the text the power of, number two, unstoppable humility. The story goes on. It says, Barak said to her, well, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't. Certainly I'll go with you, Deborah said. But because of the course you are taking, the honor won't be yours. The Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And again, the traditional view of this conversation filters it through a historically sexist lens in which Deborah's only leading because Barak's too you know, weak to man up and lead the army without asking a woman to go along. But what if? What if that wasn't what this was all about? What if Barak was something different altogether? What if he was far from weak, actually far stronger than maybe you've ever given him credit for? After all, he's about to single-handedly call 10,000 men out of nowhere to follow him. Anybody in here able to do that today? I don't think so. And what if what you're about to see in his life was the reason the writer of Hebrews, century later in chapter 11, called him a man who lived by faith? See, when Barak asked Deborah to go along with him, he's only asking Deborah to do what every other judge had always done up to this point in the book. Go out with the army. With every other judge, Othniel, Ehud up to this time, the judge is also the military commander. And here, Barak is simply honoring Deborah as God's leader for the people. This is actually, if you think about it, the wisest thing he could have done. I mean, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't you want the wisest person, the best leader to go out with you? See, it's logical. And you'll notice, of course, she doesn't protest or rebuke him. She says, certainly, I'll go. After all, Ruth says the same thing to Naomi in the book of Ruth. Where you go, I'll go. If you don't go, I won't go. We don't call Ruth weak for that. We say she's strong, right? But then she gives, here Deborah gives this curious statement. She says, because of the course you're taking, the honor won't be yours. The Lord will deliver sister into the hands of a woman. So listen, she's not rebuking a so-called lack of faith. Now hear this. She is using, almost every commentator now says this, her prophetic insight to give a picture of what's going to happen into the battle. The Lord has given her insight and she is leading Barak prophetically. Because of the course you're taking literally means because of where you are going. So we should ask, where is he going? Well, Barak's about to go to the very place that would have seemed the least likely to ever bring him victory, the side of a mountain. Deborah says, take your 10,000 men and camp on the side in the open. The camp on the side of Mount Tabor. And she says, if you'll do this, God says he will then lure out to you the most powerful nation your army's faced up to now in the promised land. And as you are totally exposed, Barak, totally vulnerable, 
as you are awaiting the world's superpower and armored vehicles to trample you down, the commander's sister is going to flee from you and I'll give the army into your hands. Now, I don't know about you. That doesn't sound like a battle plan for success. Sounds more like a recipe for disaster. You've got to be thinking barracks, thinking, man, huddle up with my men with no tactics or strategy other than sit down in the open and wait for them to attack us. Huh. Wait for 900 armored vehicles to mow us down. And he's got to be thinking, after, you're telling me after I risk all of that, I get no honor from it? That's right. What kind of man would do that? A man like Barak, because he does it. He goes. He risks everything and makes himself vulnerable on the side of a mountain so that Sisera is now lured out to a certain place in Israel called the Kishon River. And as Sisera goes, chapter 5 tells us what happens next. As Sisera moves toward him, it says, From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The Angel River, the river Kishon. Verse 4 tells us that God sent the rains and flooded the river. God, in other words, in the middle of the night, the stars were out. He opened the heavens and he flooded the Kishon River as Sisera moved across it. And as the torrent of water came down, now the tables were turned. Now Sisera had 900 de-chariated and waterlogged men facing an army of 10,000 coming down at him in the darkness of the night. See? tables have been turned in a moment through the life and the humility of Barak. And therefore, this text shows us the advantage, can I put it like this, the advantage of disadvantages. Why was Sisera defeated? Only because he perceived himself as strong and unconquerable. Why did Barak win in the end? Only because he made himself weak. Right. And what if, therefore, really to win and triumph in your life today, whatever battle you may be fighting, you begin to see your disadvantages as really an advantage? What if you thought was a disadvantage to you really wasn't? The Huguenots were a group of French Protestant Christians during World War II. Their ancestors had broken away from the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation, and one French king, a ruler after another, had attempted to wipe them out. Their faith was made illegal by the state. There were massive roundups and massacres. Fathers were hung. Women were imprisoned. Their children forcibly taken from them and put into foster homes to rid them of their faith and their culture. The persecution was so severe that in the late 1600s, 200,000 Huguenots fled France for other countries. The few that were left were forced underground and worshipped in secrecy and in the forest. They formed a seminary in Switzerland. They, they figured out how to smuggle their pastors across the border to train them and, and bring them back. And when in World War II, the Nazi persecution began of the Jews, and Jews began showing up on their doorstep because the Huguenots also had a long history and tradition of taking in the weak and the outcast and the refugee like themselves. The Huguenots accepted the Jews even under pain of death themselves. They openly, if you read the story, defied the Nazis. They made public what they were doing. But because of their years, you see, of being put at a disadvantage, they knew where to hide the Jews, see, how to lead them to safety. Magda Trochme, who was the wife of a local Huguenot pastor, she said this later. She said, the people in our village, in Les Chambon, knew already what persecutions were. They often talked about their ancestors. Many years went by and they forgot. But when the Germans came, they were able to understand the persecution of the Jews. For they'd already had a kind of what? What does she say? Preparation. Ah, sometimes people ask me, how did you make a decision? There was no decision to make. The issue was, do you think we are all brothers or not? 
Do you think it is unjust to turn in Jews or not? Then let us try to help. Did you hear that? She said, even in the face of death, they didn't flinch. How could this be? Here's why. She called their persecution a preparation. In attempting to wipe out the Huguenots, can you see? In putting them at a disadvantage for centuries, the French created a people that were impossible to wipe out. Impossible to wipe out and ensell themselves unstoppable. And do you know who the leader of these kind of Christians were? It was a man named Andre Trocmé, whose mother had been killed in front of his eyes as a 10-year-old in a car crash. Now, confronting Nazi officers and risking your life to be sentenced to a death camp is nothing compared to having your mother die in front of you as a boy. See, what looked like a disadvantage, a crippling disadvantage, became, he noted, as the source of his strength. And what looked like a disadvantage of the Huguenots, centuries of persecution is what prepared them to save others. And in Barak's case, the 20 years of suffering at the hands of a foreign power had produced in him this thought. My enemy's too strong for me. The only way we can win is if God helps me. God, I know what you're asking me to do right now sounds crazy, but I'll do it. And therefore, Barak made himself weak. He made himself vulnerable. But in the end, can you see, it was the strongest thing he could have done. He moved out from vulnerability and saved his nation. It sounds like, I mean, that's crazy talk. It is. It is. Let me ask you, can you serve God today? though there's not a logical reason to do it. Can you serve God, though it may put you at a disadvantage? Can you obey God when you don't understand what or why he's even asking you to do it? Can you? You say, oh God, Morgan, obeying God in this area will make me weak. In regards to my money, my time, my sex life, that's right. Oh, but if you'll do that and obey him, let me just suggest to you, your victory is just around the corner. The Apostle Paul put it like this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Then I am strong. You ask, how could Paul write this? Oh, because he knew what Barak knew, that God saves ultimately through, number three, finally, an unexpected deliverer. Story goes on. says, Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife, Heber the Kenite. And we know what happens next, of course. Jael, excuse me, because she's not a Jew, offers Sisera what looks like a safe place to retreat from the battle. She offers him milk to drink. He falls asleep from exhaustion, never to wake again. And as Jael the Kenite hammers a tent peg through his temple, she ends his reign of rape and terror. And in the end, the irony of the story is this. Can you see it? Sisera, the man of power, is felled by an unarmed woman. Unarmed woman. The tables have been turned. The roles have been reversed. She uses the most common everyday household items. See, a tent peg and a hammer are considered woman's work in that day. Milk, she offers him. And as a nail goes down in the ground, Sisera dies and she frees the people. Now, that's a great story, isn't it? It's a great story. But what's it really all about? Here's what. Let me ask you. You ever wonder why certain stories like this are in the Bible? Because when most of us read the Bible, we've been taught, or maybe we do read it as it's just sort of random collection of stories that are supposed to teach us how 
how to live better, maybe give us some inspiration for everyday life. But that's not how the Hebrew people read it. And let me just suggest to you, that's not how you ought to read it either. Because the Bible has one overarching plot line, a plot line introduced all the way back in Genesis 3. When man rebels against God, he falls, he sins. God says, humanity's blown it. They cannot save themselves. But one day, one day, a child will come, born of a woman, and that child will grow up to be a deliverer of his people and rescue them from their oppression. See, the entire Bible is about a coming deliverer who's unexpected and only, therefore, stories and people that are attached to that plot line make it in. Because if the Bible were only about the stories and the people themselves, well, my goodness, then the people themselves are the heroes. But if we read the Bible as we ought to, not just as a collection of like Aesop's fables or a nice, you know, bedtime story for our kids. And by the way, good luck reading Genesis to your kids at night. Man, they'll keep them up all night. They'll never go to sleep. Don't do it. See? What if we read it as one larger interconnected story? If we do, now a purpose for every story emerges. And that purpose is to show how God's larger purpose is coming to pass. And what was God's purpose? To form out of one family, one nation, through whom one deliverer would come. And now, can you see the survival of that nation and that story and that plot line is at stake? So God, he's got to do something about it. But what's he going to do? His people have become increasingly immoral, corrupt, wicked. They worship other gods. And yet at the same time, he said, Deuteronomy 31, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. Oh, now you see, we've got in Judges here a seeming contradiction. It's actually the tension that propels the whole Old Testament. On one hand, God demands obedience. And he has every right to demand obedience out of you and me today and judges for not obeying him. On the other, he makes promises of commitment and fidelity and loyalty and his kesed, his mercy and grace and covenant love. Therefore, the question now emerges, will his justice, which he has every right to enact on the people, override his mercy? Or will his mercy, because he loves, override his justice? He lets people off the hook. Michael Wilcock, a great commentator, puts it this way. He says, it is though the Lord is saying, I have sworn to give you the whole of this land, yet I have sworn not to give it to a disobedient people. What is this you have done to me? Done to me. And this is a tension that is never resolved until the New Testament. How so? Like this. Centuries later, there was another Deborah, a greater Deborah, another child of God's who was raised up to rescue the people from their oppression, and his name was Jesus. But Jesus is greater than Deborah because Deborah's rule ended. And the greater Deborah, Jesus Christ, his rule will never end. And centuries later, there was another Barak, a greater Barak, who also made himself utterly vulnerable and totally exposed and went up on another mountain in total darkness. Only when he came down from Calvary, he didn't come out in power. He came down in death. And finally, Centuries later, there was another J.L., a greater J.L., who would come to be the unexpected deliverer of a people. Like J.L., he saw a people's pain, and though he didn't have to, he willingly entered into their story. Like J.L., his heart was moved by the plight of a suffering people. And like J.L., there was nothing about him that would cause his enemies to be threatened. And yet, he won the greatest victory the world's ever seen. How? 
in a shocking turn of events. Jesus, though he had done nothing wrong, ceases from being jail. He goes himself, turns around, goes under the tent peg, the hammer. He takes the nails himself to become the great Sisera. And he dies so that we can live and go free from the oppression we've all brought on ourselves. You ask, how could that happen? Second Corinthians 5 tells us, it said, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See this, after Jael puts to death the enemy of Israel's soul, it says this, then the land had peace. In other words, the effect and the power of the victory that Jael won didn't just come on her. Oh, it came on all the people, though they had done nothing. See, Jael isn't just fighting for the people. She's fighting as the people. She is their unexpected substitute and savior. And Jesus is greater than her because he isn't just an example. He is the greater substitute for us in two ways. He lived first the life we should have lived. Like Jael, he fought the battle of righteousness, of of obedience to God, the battle we can never win, and he won it. But he also died the death we should have died so that all the darkness and the wickedness of all our sin-generating hearts, like little Sisera's, we generate our own kingdom. We oppress others for our own benefit. Now, we could go free. Humanity could be rescued. See, now both God's justice and his mercy are shown fully. And this morning, church, if you will see that and cry out to him, Jesus, the great unexpected deliverer, here's what will happen to you. First, you can't arise. You can arise in whatever circumstance that they have uncommon courage because you know this, you're loved. You're loved no matter what, and no matter what happens to you, God is for you. He's not against you. And secondly, you can have unstoppable humility. You can make yourself vulnerable with others. There are men's breakfasts, retreats, community groups, all kinds of places. Make yourself vulnerable because you know that in the end, you can't save yourself anyway. And if you couldn't save yourself to begin with, what makes you think you can save yourself now? See, this morning, if you'll see this deliverer, cry out to him. It's going to happen to you, for you. Let's pray as we close. Father, we come. We come this morning. Jesus' name, crying out, Lord, for this. Lord, I'm crying out this morning that we would arise. We would arise as people. Lord, arise with a sense of God upon our souls. Lead a nation back to you. Lord, I'm praying for those here who need courage. Oh, Lord, they've been oppressed or abused or threatened or abandoned. Well, they need courage to arise. Lord, I'm praying for them now. If that's you this morning, you say, Morgan, there's a, sort of a, there's a battle I'm facing. I need courage to face this this morning. Would you, would you, I'm asking, would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Yeah, my hands all over the room, Lord. So many battles. But, Lord, these have come. These have come that you would be glorified. These have come that we would become people of perseverance and grit and tenacity. Lord, I'm praying for courage for these. Let them arise today like Deborah as they sense you at work in their heart and circumstances. I want to pray for another group now. If you're, this is you this morning and you say, Morgan, man, I... There's an issue of pride in a sense I've been wrestling with. There's an area in my life God's been speaking to me about commanding me to surrender to him, a place he's commanded me to go. I'm not willing to go. But this morning, I want to say yes and make myself vulnerable to him. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Yeah. 
Thank you for these, Lord. Lord, I'm praying this morning as they acknowledge this, as they make themselves vulnerable, as they go to the place. It looks like certain defeat. Lord, you bring an unbelievable rescue and triumph. That's what you did at the cross. Out of the pit of death, you raised up the Son of God eternally. Lord, now, I pray for the courage and the humility of a deliverer to come into them, to us, in Jesus' name. Jesus' name, amen. Amen.